the best-selling compliance handbook by compliance evangelist and compliance podcast network founder tom fox has been updated revised and improved in its new second edition this new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today you're in for an uber treat because I have Karen Woody. Karen is associate professor at Washington and Lee in the School of Law. We are tangentially related because Karen's firm was the monitor of a company I was with when I was general counsel. So that makes us uh very close cousins, I think, Karen. Right. I think that's right. So, Karen, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Oh, I'm so happy to, to be visiting with you, Tom. It's great to see you. Karen, could you talk a little bit about your professional background and what led you to WNL? Sure. It's a good question. Well, as you said, I, I practiced law um, in Washington, D.C. for about 10 years doing white collar crime, corporate investigations, some securities fraud. Uh, a lot of internal deep dives into, into companies. And so we looked a lot at internal controls and compliance programs. Um, and then uh, I decided to pivot and I, I went into academia. So I was teaching, initially I was teaching at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business, where I taught uh, legal environment of business and uh, a securities overview to business students. And then in 2019, I returned back home to Virginia, which is my home state, where I teach law at Washington Lee University. So still doing business law courses, um, but now to law students. So at least one of your uh, specialties is around the Securities and Exchange Commission. I was just wondering what led you to either have that interest or that academic interest? Well, it stems from my time in practice. I spent a number of hours over at the SEC um, negotiating settlements um, or advocating for various corporate clients and individual clients, actually, at the SEC, both in D.C. and New York. Um, and so I had that background, and that is what sort of took me down the path of looking into a number of things that uh, touch on the SEC's jurisdiction. So, of course, that includes disclosure obligations. Um, one of my sort of niche areas was uh, deals with conflict minerals, um, a disclosure obligation that came out of Dodd-Frank. Uh, and then, of course, FCPA and other sort of major uh, um, matters that the SEC would be undertaking. Obviously, the FCPA is alongside with DOJ, but um, but I often was focused on sort of the SEC angle, uh, the accounting, books and records type violations. Um, so in a number of areas, I, I usually was dealing with someone over in that office. So, Karen, uh, I really wanted to visit with you about uh, this chapter or this episode on internal controls. And I was wondering if we could just start with what is your definition of internal controls? Well, it's a great question. And it is it is not necessarily entirely pinned down. It really is more of a qualitative um, principles type uh, idea. But in in sort of nuts and bolts or boiled down. Internal controls are, are a system of policies and procedures that a corporation will enact that include things like various um, checks and balances, um, certain uh, types of guardrails, if you will, in order to ensure that the company is complying both with its own internal policies, as well as obviously any federal or state statutory um, or any other sort of 
mandated regulations. And so this is looks a lot like you know what I often call them is the the smoke alarm that hopefully goes off if there are uh, any incidents of things that could be fraud, you know, or or even things that aren't necessarily intentional, sort of foot faults, even things that um, hopefully the company has some system in place to catch when there is some wrongdoing happening, even if that might be unintentional mistakes. So um, one of the things that's intrigued me about internal controls is there is, I think, at least some consistent body of internal controls that seem to be the basics that people agree every public or audited company should have, yet internal controls can change. They can evolve. They can grow as the bad guys get more sophisticated, as footballs become more prevalent. Um, would that be a fair analysis? Uh, yeah, and that's why it's hard to pin down a really tight definition because with all things, it moves. And as as people get even, you know, if you're cynical about it, as people get maybe sort of more nefarious and can get around internal controls, that means you need to shift the controls to catch to catch the loopholes that maybe some people can take advantage of. One thing I think a lot of people don't understand about internal controls is they are not absolute. They right. can be overridden by management override or an appropriate level of override, I should say. But there has to be some sort of justification, typically a business justification for that. Could you explain management override, kind of override of internal controls, but why that not is not necessarily an illegal act or perhaps even a bad thing? Sure. I mean, you see this. And I teach this often, even when I'm teaching general sort of corporate law and the role of the directors and obviously the deference you give to directors. I mean, if we lived entirely in a risk free uh, world, then, you know, you might not you might not have sidewalks because someone can trip. So there are times where we obviously want certainly when you have a business you're running and you have the tension of needing to try to maximize profits, ensure that your business is viable, you might not be able to sort of you know, to use my analogy, rubberize every sidewalk. There are times where you will let certain things um, uh, allow for additional risk, knowing, hoping, or hoping that, that that won't be problematic. And so I say that because, as you say, it's sort of a balancing act of, of weighing the tension between um, ensuring that your business is able to be competitive uh, and, and, and successful, while also, as I say, staying within the guardrails um, of, of both your policies and all sort of other regulations that apply to the business. So in evaluating or thinking about an override, what would you suggest uh, be done to, to document why an override was either performed or granted? Well, you use the most important word, which is to document it. Uh, uh, that is always going to be critical um, to ensure that there's some understanding, some reason written down that uh, management decided to either acknowledge that there might be some risk and still go ahead um, despite the risk. Um, I do think, as, as we said, some of these are close calls and they might very well turn on, well, this, this is a business opportunity to take. We, we put these certain amount of controls in place, but obviously we can't um, ensure that we can, you know, rake the sand in front of every person in this, in this industry. So we might acknowledge there'll be some potential risk that we have allowed to go forward knowing that that means, um, you know, th that's what we need in order to have our business keep to keep going. But documenting it would be a huge step. Um, and, you know, if, if it runs all the way up to, to higher level management, there is a decent amount of deference given to the board under a business judgment rule type idea. 
Um, meaning that if it was ended up being somewhat uh, of a tough call, there is some understanding that there was a reason that they made that decision. So the way to ensure that that decision looks grounded um, in the best interest of the company is to document it and to ensure that, you know, they've laid it out. Another way to check is to, again, run it by a number of um, hopefully people that are in that room, like your chief compliance officer, your chief legal officer, or other sort of people that are, are ensuring that this is um, the wisest decision. So have you had the, the either the opportunity or been required to back when you were practicing to literally sit across the table from an SEC representative and, and have a, a discussion with them about whether a control override was warranted or there was appropriate business justification? It's a long-winded way of saying, how does the SEC view uh, overrides of internal controls and what type of documentation may uh, be acceptable in their eyes? Huh, that's a great question. Uh, and unfortunately, I think my answer is if you're sitting in a room uh, across the table from the SEC, they're probably not going to agree with the fact that the businessman or the management performed an override. Um, you know, I it's funny because often when I was dealing this with this, I, I was coming from almost a different lens or a different way to look at that, which is, if anything, the SEC was uh, annoyed that there wasn't some internal control that would have tipped off um, or would have stopped some sort of um, behavior. So it wasn't, I, I can, I'm trying to remember incidents where they said, oh yeah, management knew about this and looked away. It was much more that something went wrong. Ah, this, you know, we had some rogue employee or someone, and we didn't have a system to have caught that before it happened. So I'm trying to think if there were, um, I mean, close calls where management would have said, yeah, we kind of knew that might have happened, but we ignored it. The SEC is not going to take kindly to that argument. <laughs> Karen, in uh, the summer of 2014, I read this document entitled the COSO 2013 Internal Controls Frameworks. And it was one of the biggest revelations I've had since I've been in compliance. And I literally said, who wrote this? This is incredible. This is a compliance internal control program. Who's calling this financial controls? Who, who, who's, who's doing this? Um, and I, when I talked to someone who had any knowledge of internal co controls, they did what you just did. They smirked. And they uh, sometimes they roll their eyes. But then I would say, but look, I'm a lawyer. Uh, you don't understand. I always thought these were these were lawyers do cool things. They don't do controls. And it really was a revelation to me. And it was a revelation because the framework itself is broad enough to cover a variety of disciplines, safety, health, compliance, financials, but it also laid it out in a way that I thought set a backbone for a best practices compliance program. So I wondered if you just might give some, some general thoughts, your thoughts on the, the COSO 2013 framework how powerful you thought it may have been, the, the amount of work that went into it. And then and we can talk about some of the individual objectives and how a compliance practitioner can use it. That's a, it's a great question. And you're right. It is such a powerful tool that the committee of sponsoring organizations or COSO, as you said, um, pulled together. And it's really was sort of thought leadership on how to have a robust compliance program. And it is, as we'll talk about here in a minute, very principles-based, meaning that it's not sort of, you know, check the box on everything. We're going to have a broad idea, 
knowing that there will be a lot of potential iterations or versions of um, compliance uh, programs that meet those principles. And so I, I think it is it is obviously very widespread in terms of all the types of principles, but it's also one that I think is um, putting very much intuitive and um, common sense type uh, uh, structure on what most compliance officers hopefully have already set in motion or are thinking about. But this way does lay it out in a very clear structure. Um, so it's easy for people to follow along and walk through, you know, very clear objectives. And then with those objectives has principles under them to ensure that you're sort of not missing anything. I think the weight of different certain areas of those might be given different um be given different well, weight, I guess I would say, uh, between those different objectives. There obviously are some uh, maybe more hot button areas of compliance programs, or I would say maybe more risk laden areas that compliance programs need to ensure that they have. Uh, and that might just also depend on industry um, and area of the world in which uh, the company is operating. So it is very comprehensive, very complex in some ways, but I think it hits every sort of potential uh, area in which you could find a, a potential compliance um, problem. So yeah, so I think this is a huge document. It's a really important resource for anyone who's in this field. Uh, do you think that lawyers are finally have finally gotten it about internal controls or do you still sort of hear that same look i'm a lawyer i do cool things I do investigations you know i, I talk to the government yeah. i don't do controls those people down the hall who we don't let out um, right do the controls is is that sort of mentality still around uh not as much there was a little bit of this you know what we would call JD preferred is who the compliance people are like, you're, you're not even, might not even be a lawyer, but you kind of, you're close enough. There's a little of that sort of vibe still, but honestly, everyone who's doing the internal investigations, the remediation and what you need to show after having done the investigation is a robust compliance program. And that's what you walk into the government and show to say, listen, we have cleaned house. We've fixed some of these problems here is how airtight our compliance program is going forward. And so it's sort of two sides of the same coin. And so it'd be hard to divorce those things at this point. And so I think almost every lawyer knows that. Certainly everyone who's representing a company that has been anywhere near uh, the FCPA or, or has even just reads the Wall Street Journal and sees the numbers of the fines that come in just on lack of internal controls alone. It's not something people can ignore. So I was wondering if we could go through the five objectives and you could just sort of describe generally what they are and how you see them utilized. And if we could start with objective one, control environment. Right. So that's exactly what it says, which is the environment, I think is sort of the operative um, word there. And that is uh, sort of tone of tone at the top, which is a phrase you hear all of the time in the compliance programs. This talks about this idea of, um, I, I mean, it, it's hard to, to put, again, in like quantitative terms because it does deal with that idea of environment. How do you describe that? So, I mean, I would use words like character, ethical commitment on behalf of management and, and senior officers. Um, this does sort of deal with this broad structure of the company in order to have uh, an environment that stands up robust controls. 
So there's that. So this is commitment, again, to this idea of ethics and um, integrity. That's actually even the first principle under this one. But then also under this objective is some ways to affect that. So talking through, you know, this idea of what, um, what the delegation of authority type ideas, who's overseeing what, what is the structure of uh, the compliance um, arm of the company, who the dotted line reports are, uh, who are the, you know, all, all these ideas of how do we ensure that the right people are seeing the information and are overseeing, um, you know, who's making important decisions. So under this first objective, like I said, you have this, again, commitment to an ethical um, company, but then also talk through how do we do that? We have the board having some oversight. We have a very clear compliance structure. We're, we're clear about who has what level of authority. Um, uh, also under this uh, objective is this is the idea of um, ensuring that you have uh, training sort of employees are, are able to be um, trained on these things, that you are ensuring that you are hiring good individuals who share this same level of ethical commitment, um, and that there are potential ramifications for, for failing to, to have um, this level of, of commitment, that there's something in place that shows, you know, there is there is sort of a, a carrot and stick idea here, that there could be a stick if you if you fail to meet to meet the policies that the company puts in place. Karen, I'm glad you expanded on the structure of the COSO framework because I started off with the objectives. You said, well, there are five principles under this, and then you didn't name them, but here's the next step that for me was the real power, which is their points of focus. And those points of focus give you specific actions mm -hmm. that you could engage in or put in your uh, compliance program to test whether or not the internal controls uh, were working. And uh, there's, uh, having done this exercise, there's five objectives, 17 principles, and uh, uh, 84 points of focus, uh, uh, because I mapped the 10 hallmarks and effective compliance program to that once. And it really does give you some specific things, uh, like we all hear tone at the top, and for years it was, well, how do we measure it? Well, the COSO framework tells you how. And sure. they give you a principle, and then they give you multiple points of focus that you can point your leaders towards. Uh, to say this is how we're going to show it. So mm -hmm. that to me was was really the power of it. It it, it was more than just uh, logical or intuitive and principle based. And it really went down into some very specific weeds of this is how we suggest you do it. Doesn't mean we're the best. And if you can improve on it, certainly do it. But it gave you a framework to think about all of this. Right. So and what I about think that, that rings true for even these other objectives? I think we'll, we'll talk through that. There is a, an overarching idea, but they really do, like you say, drill down on how to to meet those goals. How about risk assessments? What did you see in that objective? You know, what I like about how they wrote this um, part is this idea that it's easy to point to risk. It's easy to think through, oh, man, we're doing business in this country that's on Transparency International's list of most corrupt countries or something like that. But this one is an interesting one in that they talk through, okay, we're, we can identify the risk, but how do we assess it? Like, how do we have these objectives of how we want to meet the goals of managing that risk? So it's not just identifying risks. There's sort of that next step of thinking through what's our objective given that risk? You know, how do we analyze it and get through, um, you know, sort of sail through maybe some, some, some rocky, uh, waters in some ways, uh, 
or choppy waters, I guess is the better metaphor there. Um, and then also here they, under here, they also talk about this idea of, um, well, fraud risk is one of them too, which um, I don't know if I necessarily would separate that out as its own category, but certainly looking at um, this idea of what about sort of bad actors, people who aren't just having mistakes or unaware, but are intentionally, um, you know, taking on potential, you know, we're risking that people are, are going to be acting fraudulently. That falls under this risk assessment paradigm. Um, and then also this idea that, you know, there will be things that will shift and, and sort of this idea that this can be a dynamic idea here. That's one of the principles under this one, this idea of analyzing change, um, identifying where things change and shift and that, you know, you can have, you know, uh, a business that can react to that um, and include that change in the risk framework and assessment. So how about the next objective, uh, control activities? Okay, control activities. So um, this one I think is uh, an interesting one because it is about this, uh, and I think very critical for internal controls, absolutely. So here you have this idea of um, what are the tools we are doing to, to, to stand up these controls. So this phrase, this um, section talks a lot about who is assigned to, to, to monitor these things, sort of this who has what authority and what, and what duties uh, in preventing and detecting fraud or any other, um, any other activity that would trigger an internal control. Um, and so this also includes um, technology um, the use of monitoring via technology and sort of how to ensure um, that there are programs in place to catch these things. Um, and then, you know, I think this really is this uh, idea of trying to, you know, really do the stress tests of, of a company, really running the traps of, of whether these internal controls would catch uh, a variety of different types of activities. You tell me, Tom, if I if I'm speaking out of turn, if you think I'm I'm off on some of my descriptions of these, because um, I know you've wrestled with these for a long time. But that that's sort of how I see that um, principle or the subjective. No, and that's part of the beauty I think of of the coastal framework is it allows it has the flexibility that you and I can have different interpretations, or there can be multiple interpretations, and they all could be right. Because for me, it's all about your documentation, and if you have a control uh, that you have a, a guardrail. Uh, uh, you have a smoke detector and you document that you have gone up and tested under that smoke detector and no smokes come out or if smokes come out. You've documented the reason you've moved forward. Uh, that's the purpose of the control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So number four is information and communication. And these next two were revelatory to me and really for a different reason in the information and communication. It, I was stunned when I read it because it talked about, not simply corporate communication from the top down. It talked about corporate communication from the bottom up, but right. it also talked about external stakeholder communication back to the corporation and uh, corporation communications with stakeholders, particularly third parties who might be sales agents, distributors, or others. And that um, was not really something in, in 2012 or 2010 that, I think a lot of compliance practitioners were focused on that outbound nature of communication other than perhaps a, an hour a year in, in anti-bribery training. So That's exactly um, right. I had that same thought when I was reading through scan, like this was sort of new. I mean, right. we all were talking about the hotline and, you know, whistleblower sort of avenues and, you know, the idea that we want to keep that as internal as possible, at least in the first instance. 
Um, you know, and then obviously after Dad Frank, that became a little trickier when there were such, you know, bounties and for whistleblowers. But this idea of sort of open communication, I think it as all these, they sort of integrate and weave back to the bigger themes here, which really is this idea that we are committed to having an ethical company. One way to do that is to ensure that there is open communication and some transparency. And as you said, going both directions from top down and then from bottom up, sort of both ways. And then outside of the company, that was the one that, you know, as you said, sort of this external communication to other stakeholders and recognizing that that's an important feature, I think, I think was a, was a really important addition um, that COSO put in here that I, I don't know that compliance officers were, were thinking about maybe until I had seen this. And then objective five is monitoring activities. And I found that my reaction to that was a little similar because I certainly knew what monitoring was, even if I didn't really advocate it, because once again, that's what control people do, and that's not cool, uh, cool lawyer stuff. But the part that was revelatory for me was it's not simply monitoring, it's taking the information that you yeah. gain from the monitoring and, and incorporating it back into your system. If it needs rem remediation, you remediate, but you can also use it for improvement. This is almost eight or nine years before the Department of Justice said, you need continuous monitoring and you need continuous improvement. So uh, 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 what were your thoughts on this subject? I, and similar to yours, which is, you know, uh, this seems sort of novel. It seemed like it was a, a first mover of having such a wide, broad idea of what compliance and monitoring means. And you're right, that, that beat even the government from explaining what they're looking for, this laid out, like you should already have that type of idea of sort of this iterative sort of feedback loop already in place for your compliance program that I think is huge because that's that's usually what's happening. As I said, you know, at the beginning of this, that there are ways that people learn how to circumvent these internal controls. So it does need to be a dynamic policy. And this is an objective that makes that very clear. Like we have to sort of be continually improving upon these to ensure that we are we're doing we're doing what we are asked to do as compliance um, professionals. Karen, uh, there was one other area that I wanted to uh, I've actually wanted to talk to you about for a long time, and that is when the SEC brings an enforcement action where there's no evidence of bribery, at least in the cease and desist order, but there's an internal control violation found. Some people call that a non-bribery FCPA enforcement action. Uh, I call it an internal controls enforcement action. But what what does really the SEC view its role with regard to public companies and the internal control provision found in the accounting provisions of the FCPA? I you know this is a very uh, dynamic area of the law. I think I wrote an article about this and about five years ago, um, and it was actually the title of it was "No Smoke and No Fire." You know, it was this idea that we don't have bribery. We might not even have an actual accounting discrepancy. But they still said, if you had had one of those, your internal controls wouldn't have caught it. And I was arguing that that's not that's that's over prosecution, to say the least, sort of a like, well, nothing's act, nothing has happened yet. But this idea of like you can still be dinged just because you're um, you wouldn't catch it if it does happen. And that uh, th th I was wrong in the sense that the SEC does not take that same view. They have very much used the internal controls provision to come after companies um, with obviously without an anti-bribery maybe foundation, but now even in areas of the law that don't deal with the FCPA or bribery at all. So they're using this 
Section 13B2B um, on requiring internal controls writ large. So we just saw a case last fall, um, um, Texas actually, sort of the, the Andover case, mm -hmm. which dealt with a company doing stock buybacks under their 10B51 plan. Um, and so an insider trading uh, issue is basically uh, the substance of the violation. But the SEC didn't bring an insider trading claim. They actually said, well, we're going to bring an internal controls violation because you didn't comply with your the you know your internal policies that that you would be sure that the stock buybacks are you know you're, are violating a potential insider trading uh, or even not even not federal insider trading but your own policies of the company. And so that was sort of a novel idea of like, wait, we can just now pick this provision up and apply it in a number of different areas. And you you also talked about the United case. Um, Wherein again, this we had a domestic potential bribery situation, so couldn't be prosecuted under the FCPA, but still using that internal controls provision as applicable to the activity that was occurring in that case as well uh, a few years ago. So I think the SEC is able to really stretch this provision uh, and 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 use it widely, and I think we'll see a lot more of that. The Department of Justice, separate apart from the SEC, has for the last year or so started talking much more aggressively about effective compliance programs and it's led me and others to speculate, are they going to now start testing the effectiveness of a compliance program? I don't think they can do that in a criminal setting because you don't have a bribe, but if the DOJ starts testing the effectiveness of compliance programs, I think that could open up really a another avenue for the government to, to look at controls, test controls. And even if you haven't had a bribe and there's no fire and there's no smoke, but if your program itself is not effective, it could potentially lead to, to some action by the government. Yeah. I mean, what is interesting is that I can't you know, query how they even come up with that unless there is something that went wrong. I mean, it's sort of, as I say, like they're, it's an interesting way that these cases even come up because you could almost pick up anything and say, I'm going to stress test this. Would it, would it have caught something? Um, and so sometimes we saw these because they didn't think they had enough to make the case on the other ones. Um, but you're right. We could get to a place where they just, you know, call you up and, and, and do these hypotheticals really um, to a company and to, to see that their internal controls would catch one thing or the other. And so, yeah, I think we could we could see that being additional risk um, for companies or that, that that that's coming at them, at least certainly from the government side. Well, Karen, unfortunately, we now are at the end of our time, but this has just been way too much fun. I hope I can call upon you maybe down the road to of course. Uh, to uh, come back on. So I wanted to thank you again. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been great. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.